Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the east end of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com We are recording. Hey, everybody. We are back again for 27 Speaks. Um, so this week, this week we're kind of going to veer off a little bit and, and talk about something that's just a, not so not so specific to our area, but something that's being talked about the world over, at least the country over. So we'll get into that in a minute. But first, I want to just let everybody know who's here. Um, and we have, of course, Bill Sutton, as usual, manning the controls. Hey, Bill. Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And we have Joseph Shaw here. Hey, Joe. Hey, Annette. I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. You hate it when I call you Joseph. I No, actually, it's okay. I, I, I just need to switch a little bit in the Zoom video when I say Joseph. Joey is so, the one thing I'm not a big fan of because I always, there were only two people I let call me Joey, my mom and Vince Canusio, the former supervisor <laughs> of Southampton Town. He was, always, he was allowed to call me Joey <laughs> just because he did and I just got used to it. So. I'm not sure I know why, but that's okay. <laughs> I was I was Billy for many years growing up. I was actually Nettie. Nettie. Uh-huh. Yeah. I like Nettie, actually. Yeah. So I am Annette Hinkle. I am the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And my middle name is Joan. And we have a Joan here sitting in with us. And it's Joan Baum. And, and you can call me Joan. <laughs> <laughs> Not Joni. <laughs> Joni, Billy, right. Joey, and Nettie. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So Joan Baum has, has joined us. Joan writes a lot of book reviews for us. And she's sort of tapped into the literary scene. And in this week's papers, she wrote a essay about the whole idea of Dr. Seuss and the fact that his estate has decided not to continue publishing six of his titles because of what they perceive as racial insensitive imagery in the books. So that's what we're going to talk about. So it has nothing to do with the East Hampton Town Board or the South Hampton Town Board or sports or anything. So that's where we're starting. As far as we know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is interesting. So maybe it is affecting us on the local level in terms of the local libraries. So Joan, what did you find? Did you find out anything about Mm -hmm. how the Seuss titles are being, uh, how this whole news is being perceived at the local libraries? Well, the only local library I went to, which was East Hampton, had one of the six offending, ostensibly offending books. And I wanted to read it. I had a lovely chat with the librarians who told me, good for you, because we still have this. And that discussion morphed very quickly into the fact that other Seuss books were disappearing from the library, and in fact, disappearing from Suffolk County libraries. The library told me that they had had an alert from someone up island to the effect that people might be calling regarding any Seuss book saying, oh dear, I lost my copy, but I'll pay. Uh, And then a couple of days later, the librarians would discover this book on eBay, starting at $500. Ostensibly, when the brouhaha about the six offending books came out, only those six offending books were going for big money, what 
ones were discovered, but now all Seuss books are way up on Amazon. So this problem, issue, concern, craziness has taken a lot of centrifugal force. <laughs> Incredible. So people were taking these books from the library and yes. turning around and selling them on eBay. Indeed. And the one copy that the East Hampton librarian had was of the Mulberry Street book. And at the time, I did not know that the book I read came out in 1964, because originally my research showed that this was the first of Seuss's books, and that came out in 1937. And interestingly enough, thanks to Joe who's pointing me to articles about the reissue, it was called to Seuss's attention that the word in the book and the illustration uh, seemed offensive to people after 37's publication. And so the 1964 publication, which is the only one that I know of that I was reading, had a kind of euphemistic text and illustration. And this is for a Chinese character, correct? Yes, he was called, and I'm going to say the word, Chinaman in the 1937 version, and he was called a Chinese boy in the 1964 version. Again, preceded by the, uh, the Seuss Family Foundation's acknowledgement that they made the change. I think it's also worth pointing out that the 1936, the original edition, actually had the character as yellow in the yes, book. Yes, And that mm -hmm. was changed in the 1960s edition as well, um, which, which is what I found. No, Joe, I'm sorry. Oh. Uh, the, the, what I saw in the library was yellow. Is I that right? Had the, okay. uh, yes, indeed. It's, it's really, I, I, what, what I find fascinating about this is it opens up a lot of conversations. And Joan and I have actually been having them by email because I think we're both <laughs> right. sort of fascinated by this. Mm -hmm. um, the fact, you know, just as a side note, the fact that, so the, the, the word Chinaman is an offensive term. There's no question. And, and it, it can be used in an offensive way. But I think we've reached a point in our society where even to say it as part of the conversation we're having, mm -hmm. which is just to identify the term, can get you into trouble with a lot of, with a lot of people. And as a matter of fact, um, a New York Times a uh, journalist after 40 years lost his job because he used the N-word in, mm -hmm. in a context that was, yeah, right. that was meant to be simply to clarify what term was being used in a conversation with somebody. And, but, but there are certain words now that are so hot that, that they're almost incantations. We can't say them, if just merely saying them out loud um, can get you into trouble. I, I worry about that as somebody who is a First Amendment purist. I feel like nobody is advocating the use of these words in, in any kind of an offensive way, but I worry that we're limiting ourselves in being able to even have this conversation about what we can say out loud. With a terrible detriment, Joe, and you and I have spoken about this, because the N-word turns up in Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn close to a hundred times. And yet the book is dedicated, and he said so, to his Negro friend. And when he uses the word, he knows exactly why he's using it. 
And there's a total 180 degree distortion then about the presence of the word and what Mark Twain, probably our ultimate 19th, 20th century moralist was trying to do with the power of literature that often does with schools and certainly what legislation cannot. But do you think it's a little different when you're talking about a novel like Huck Finn versus an illustration in a children's book and the use of the Well, this was not just an illustration though, Annette. This was an illustration and text. And as far as I know, they both went together in the upcry about the So book. I wondered if there was any talk about, um, I mean, this is one of my first thoughts was like, would they consider just replacing the illustrations, you know, and would that work if it was, you know, if the illustration had been updated and changed in a way to not be so stereotypical? You know, I'm going to vacillate back and forth on this a little bit. And, <laughs> right, I'll, and, and, and I'll make the point too, that if you've seen the original images, not just of the Asian character, but of African-American, there were, there were actually African characters, I believe in the, in the book, they're pretty raw and, and mm-hmm. they, they are, they are racist caricatures that um, I think we have come to recognize as being something we want to, we want to be, to be rid of, no question. However, it was of a time and I, I found in, you know, I, the, the Times article on the subject mentioned that I found it really interesting that Roald Dahl actually revised Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, mm-hmm. um, that, that the original Oompa Loompas were actually um, African pygmies. And, and so this isn't new. This is a conversation. And, and we revise literature all the time. I think I think it's a fascinating and evolve. Yeah, it does. That same Times article talked about these pieces evolving. And I think that's an interesting point that not to put words in your mouth, Joe, that you may be try, trying to get to is, is if, if you could if you could change that illustration um, and, and change the, the, the text to let those to let that book evolve and to change. Is that better? Uh, is it better than not publishing that book anymore? Are we still then, though? Are we losing the historical element of of that that book, even though it was racist? There's a historical element there that that do we want to preserve so that we can look back at history as a teachable moment, as as a talkable moment, and 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 say at some point. I mean, obviously, you don't want four year olds seeing those images, right? But but maybe you know maybe in time you can you can you can show those images in text and say this is this is the way people thought back then and and this is why that's not okay today but when once you remove that from um you know from from history then then i don't know how you do that i don't know how you grow and learn that's been part of the conversation joan and i have been having yeah that that i think and i think we we also need to define terms here i think that the whole conversation about this has been hijacked into this idea of it being cancel culture, you know, or censorship. It wasn't, right? The, the, it wasn't. The, the, the most it interesting just... thing is how it got turned into censorship. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no censorship involved in this. It was a, it was a decision by right. the Sousa state to stop publishing these books. And by the way, uh, Mulberry Street sold about 5,000 <laughs> copies last right. year. It's not a bestseller. It was his first children's book. He did a lot of wonderful work. Nobody, and and I've heard some of the commentary on this. 
I don't think he did some questionable stuff though too with the political cartoons and and all that prior. He, he did some edgy stuff, but nobody is suggesting we shouldn't read Dr. Seuss books. This is ridiculous. Let's and 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 nobody said that this is like a bunch of um, left leaners demanding the withdrawal of these books. I think that's what gets me is how it's almost weaponized. Like, look, there goes the left again. Cancel culture. You know, it's like they had nothing mm -hmm. to do with this. This is like. You know, a publisher is within their rights to publish their book again or not, you know? But, but that's not to deny that there is a cancel culture out there right now. Well, there is, but I don't think it applies in this well, case so much. No, I don't think it... The the, but the publication of these, let's say, on eBay has been canceled by ah. eBay. And as, I, and as I wrote to Joe, what irony, because a friend of mine pointed out, they're no longer there on eBay but Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf is original version. But you know, one of the uh, major concerns for me is how all this came to our attention. Not only how it got out to become different kinds of issues about banning, but basically these are books for children. Uh, unlike Huckleberry Finn, which is not a book for kids at all, although kids get abridged copies of it. Children who read these books, I don't know how they process what they read. It depends on whether an adult is with them. But I will say one thing. One of the librarians at East Hampton told me that his seven-year-old came back and was told by his teacher that Dr. Seuss was racist. And he was very angry and he should be angry. One, about the flinging about of a term that now has become all purpose uh, nonsense for many people as an old embracing term. And two, there was no comprehension by the child of what he was being told. So he just came home and said that. And the librarian as a parent was understandably angry. Um, I'm a teacher, former teacher, for many years, and it took me a long while to appreciate the fact that as a teacher with some authority, I introduced a kind of forbidden word, anything ending in ISM or IST. I wanted to hear the examples of what constituted that kind of a charge. And I think that's one of the larger problems that we have. And Joe, you mentioned it, this use of terminology, that's really a conversation stopper. No one goes into what that means. And I'd like to suggest that this is also related to, what should I call it, statueitis. <laughs> you know, every statue is going to come down, including Columbus, it's been suggested, about anybody who has any kind of racial association. And we have to make a distinction. And by we, this is another conversation. Are we talking about the schools, librarians, parents, how they all get together? But one of the difficulties is that we're in a country where different states are making their own educational policy. And it's very hard. You know, John, I'll tell you the difference, I think, with statues and books is that statues are about celebrating something. And I, I think that in some cases, 
just like our our standards evolve so that so that we've decided so that the the Seuss estate has decided these books just aren't something we want to continue publishing because of the, the issues with them or money I think that or we, money <laughs> or and, and money. money no question i mean Cynical. some of those uh, there were six books pulled and i don't know that they sold any of the other five to be honest with mm-hmm. you uh, they, they're not popular titles absolutely um, but I think now the difference with that, I think, yeah, exactly. And by the way, um, now I wonder about the eBay thing, and it didn't occur to me till we're having this conversation. I wonder if they pulled them off eBay so that people would stop stealing them from libraries. Or <laughs> it may be that simple. It may not be, right. it may not be for any other reason. It might just be to discourage theft of them from libraries. Uh, um, I think, I think that, that, the the keystone to this entire discussion is Huck Finn and how we talk about Huck Finn. I feel like it stands as just a primo example of what we're talking about. So that book contains that word, what what did you say, a hundred times. And does that mean that book has no redeeming value and, and that we shouldn't be teaching that book in schools at all? Should we not be reading that book? I feel like that gets to the heart of what I'm trying to say is that these issues are so much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And if well, we- it goes, to that, it goes to that teachable moment again. Mm-hmm. We had this discussion mm-hmm. once about, about the uh, statues. And I think when we had done the Thomas Jefferson um, you know, podcast and talking about his statues and Huck Finn or, or, or even, even Dr. Seuss, it, it, it's the context then of how those are presented. If the statues, if the statues remain standing, but there's a plaque there explaining um, th- that there may have been some some issues with Thomas Jefferson owning slaves, and that mm-hmm. becomes it becomes more teachable. If if in the class you're, you're teaching Huck Finn, but you have those conversations about racism and um, and the systemic racism and slavery, you know, of, of those times, then that becomes a wonderful teaching experience to, 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 to teach children that, you know, it was once this way, but we have evolved and we have progressed. And, you know, and, and here we are today, not, well, not perfect, certainly nowhere near perfect. Um, you know, we, we have, we have grown since then. And I, I think, you, you could you could probably do the same thing with the Dr. Seuss books, although I understand it's it's the Seuss Foundation's choice or not to you know to, to pull them or not. But I think to Joan's point that you know the, the kids are now coming home saying Dr. Seuss is racist, then that cancel culture did take over and did win for whatever motivations of the Seuss Foundation to pull those books. What happens is then there's a community that only hears. Dr. Seuss is racist, so we don't read any of his books anymore, rather than turning it into a lesson. There's a terrible um, lack of appreciation of literature, though, that's part of this. And when you said, Joe, that statues are celebratory, literature is celebratory, and what Huck Finn celebrates is one of the most remarkable adventures and a moral adventure and risk on the part of an uneducated kid who violates everything he's ever been taught as a Christian, as a kid, and decides not to turn in this man who's become his best friend, violating hell. He says, then I'll go to hell. 
this is a remarkable moment. And Mark Twain, and again, this is what I would argue for Seuss also, uh, Mark Twain's history is an incredible example of a remarkable man who not only spoke out against racism, but spoke out against any kind of unfairness, prejudice to, in his time. And we have literature that proves this. And when I went to read about Seuss, I was reading about someone whose career in many ways, not of course on a par with Twain's, was dedicated to something very similar. During the war, he did an incredible amount of political cartooning, particularly against anti-Semitism at a time that was highly unusual and certainly from his own Dartmouth background. And his experience writing was, I think, celebratory of what we haven't even mentioned here. And I wonder if it will ever be mentioned in schools where Dr. Seuss books are taught. What's celebrated in them is language, a joy of what prose can do. And even on Mulberry Street, when I sat there and read it, my first thought was, and I didn't know Mulberry Street, I thought of Greenwich Village. Of course it's not. It's from Springfield, Massachusetts, where Seuss grew up and which was totally white, very upper class. And I took another look at Mulberry Street, the book, and saw this little boy having these imaginative visions, not only of a Chinese youngster with chopsticks running by, but on the facing page of a pasha on top of a camel. He's having visions of a wide, worldwide experience looking at different people inappropriately in some cases, as it now seems. But I think it was celebratory again of the power of imagination of children and the love of language. And that we have gotten even as a group here so far, not to mention that literary quality in a way does a disservice. And I will risk saying, I don't know how frequently those aspects, including Huck Finn's language and structure, are mentioned in schools. It's very hard to be a teacher. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Did you did you teach Huck Finn ever? Yes, I did. So I want to know how you do that. By the way, let me. I'm sorry. I gave a talk on Huck Finn about two years ago for Southampton Historical Museum, and I asked my black friend in Sag Harbor, whether I should use the N word. And she said, you bet. Hmm. And when you spoke, you did. I did. And what was the audience, the makeup of the audience? Was it an entirely white audience? Two blacks, mostly white. And how, and how, what was the reaction? Nothing, <laughs> because I put it in because the context. Because of the context. Of Bill, yes. Bill mentioned that context is everything, Absolutely. I think, right. in these circumstances. And nobody, I want to be very clear here, nobody 
is advocating, I, I, I think that, that the idea then starts to take root that it's okay for people to use that word mm-hmm. sort of oh. casually. No, absolutely not. I'm not advocating that at all. But, but I do wonder how you taught Huck Finn with that giant obstacle. It, it's got to be just an albatross around your neck when you're trying to teach that book to kids. Ew. Wasn't. Well, first of all, I wasn't teaching them to kids. <laughs> I well, was teaching them t- uh, in college <laughs> and I was teaching okay, them. College. Uh, this is not to mention the talk at Southampton where there were only adults. But at the college at which I taught for 25 years, it was largely a black college in South Jamaica, Queens. And by the way, this may be relevant to throwing around terms. I have never liked the term African-American and I never use it. I use black. My students were from Africa, Central America, but mostly from the Caribbean. And boy, did they have incredible pride that distinguished a Haitian culture from a Jamaican culture and even among the British territories among those differentiations. So again, um, I watch the, the phrasing that I use, but in answer to your question, even for my adult students, I tried to put it in context. And most of all, I tried to show intention and effect. And that may go to the heart of how to differentiate, by the way, the larger problem of what to do with statues and other books that are outright racist. And I was thinking Mm -hmm. about this because this is what teachers have to think about. There is a difference between identifying what people today see as racist, but was not intended to denigrate any particular group of people and books whose outright purpose was to denigrate and dehumanize. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about a book that I did get out of a library, not East Hampton, called The Klansman. And it was the book on which Birth of a Nation was based. Mm -hmm. Thomas Dixon was his name. He had a master's in history. And the subtitle of the book was, you know, The Romance of the Ku Klux Klan. And there is no doubt that that was a book whose purpose was to generate insurrection, hostility, violence. And there, I think, is a very important difference that we make. Woof, (laughs) indeed. (laughs) Send out the hounds. (laughs) It's life on Zoom. Everything we do via Zoom, there's always phones ringing, dogs barking. You know what my question was, you know, do you think that had these Seuss books um, been better sellers, I wonder if the Seuss estate would have made an effort to change out the illustrations and keep the books. Excellent, excellent point, Annette. I quite, I made that cynical comment with Joe too. Uh, they're an estate and they're a foundation and they're interested in money. Um, so I, I do believe, and again, uh, Mulberry Street was, not to my knowledge that I was reading a later edition, but it was changed. And I think someone found statements that Seuss did say he was sorry that people interpreted this way. He made a sarcastic comment also that seemed to be sexist as well, (laughs) that people were identifying animals and putting them into a denigrating categories. And he said, 
oh, I wish they'd tell me who's who. <laughs> I would have done it better. Um, but I think we need, uh, and I don't know how we do it as a country, again, with states controlling the education system, how we get teachers to address something other than what they're responding to now and that I'll refer to as tribalism. What you're talking about, though, takes heavy lifting, and we don't like to do a lot of heavy lifting as a nation. We, sure? we like to have things cut and dried, and, and it makes it, there's such an intense flow of information all the time. If we can just stamp things one way or the other, it's easier to move on. But there are just some things that can't be stamped that simply, and I've, I feel like this was a perfect illustration of that. I think the whole conversation, is Dr. Seuss racist, is a conversation worth having in order to uncover the, the, the layers of that question. There, it's, it's a difficult question. Um, some of those drawings were racist. Does that mean Dr. Seuss was racist? Well, that, that goes back to the question we had of intent mm -hmm. and the, uh, the intent to denigrate or, and I'm not excusing this, going along with the way things were perceived and done. Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point, there have been, and there probably still are, movements to eliminate the Merchant of Venice mm -hmm. <laughs> and many other Shakespeare plays, not just that, even the Tempest. Was Dr. Seuss racist or was he just unenlightened? Well, I think if you look at the Mulberry Street book itself, Jones Point's a good one. It's like by taking it out of circulation, you sort of lose that curiosity that little character has for meeting and seeing people of the world, you know? I don't know. It's kind of sad in that it was about celebrating other cultures that you don't see on Mulberry Street. You know what I mean? So I think intent is direct here. And and I don't know. If, if I was on the board of the Seuss Estate, mm -hmm. I would be inclined to say, can't we just change out that illustrations or two? And because um, it seems like the book itself has the right message, right? I think your point is well taken, right? But do you lose an opportunity doing that? Mm -hmm. too? I, I, I mean, you yeah. weigh, weigh it either way. I think if Willy Wonka can change his Oompa Loompas, that there's no reason that Dr. Seuss can't change the boy who eats with chopsticks. You know? <laughs> of course, a key element here is that we're talking about children's literature. And that's very different from Huck Finn, even though, again, uh, it's been interpreted by some as, you know, Tom Sawyer, you know, to the end. And in fact, Huck Finn, I would say at least half the book has nothing to do with Jim and Huck. It has to do with these hustlers, these grifters. What a contemporary comment on our time. You can't get any better. And I would bet that a lot of people who object to Huck Finn either haven't read the whole book, have forgotten that part of it, and are afraid to touch that because that's highly charged and political for adults. By the way, uh, in regard to this, just slightly off, if I may, I am gonna be giving a talk on Gulliver's Travels. And I went into the children's room and said, let me see what you have on Gulliver's Travels, pretty much figuring out what they had. Only books one and two, and both of them, heavily, heavily censored, expurgated, bowlerized, uh, but all the scatological, violent stuff that Swift as a satirist invested in that book, you won't find. And I still have, I can count on one hand people who have read all of Gulliver's Travels. I have not. Particularly <laughs> book, 
particularly book three, which is all about the absurdities of abstruse mathematics. So we go back to what's on curricula, what is being read, but I wanna now challenge you because I'm challenging myself as well. How should teachers deal with this? And I go back to my librarian who said he was outraged uh, that his seven-year-old came back with this statement. What should a teacher do? I think a conversation and point out the drawing and just say, this is how people used to be portrayed, but it was found to be hurtful to children who were of that ethnic group. Mm -hmm. You know, like point it out, don't act like it doesn't exist. Because like somebody said, I think in maybe the Times interview uh, article that we were talking about, or maybe another one that I had read that, you know, a, a, a young woman said, yeah, you know, white people may not notice these images, but uh, you know, as somebody who was one of these images, believe me, I saw it and mm -hmm. I noticed it and it stuck with me, you know? So the idea that it's not that big a deal is easy for a bunch of white people to say, who are not depicted in the <clears throat> illustration, right? Exactly. I mean, I'm always I'm always amused that political correctness and cancel culture are really just attempts to try and be a little more sensitive to to how the things we say might might hurt people in a way that we that, that's just being insensitive and yes it can get carried away and i think i think that that's a conversation that's worth having as well that that to some degree both the idea of political correctness and of can, although cancel culture now is a meaningless phrase it doesn't mean anything anymore except that you're opposed to something um you know it it's it's been just drained of its of its value really but they can be taken to extremes, but at the same time, I think it's a good thing that the 1937 edition of Mulberry Street isn't acceptable anymore. I quite agree. Mm -hmm. And I think I think we've moved on as a society and said, yeah, that's just not what we want to do anymore. We 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 don't believe that that's appropriate, and and I'm not going to apologize for that. And you can call it political correctness or whatever you want to call it. But I think it's more sensitivity, and that's a healthy thing. But it's about how do we deal with these offending pieces from the past? I feel like Bill, I, I think, Bill, you said it. I mean, they should be there to point to, to say, look how it exactly. used to be and, and how things have changed now. And if we don't have it to point to. Or not. <laughs> or, or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that's crucial, too. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. well, so, John, when, when, is, when, is your, um, when is your talk on... Gulliver's Travels and where, and do you have the details? Uh, it, well, Tom Edmonds, I think, set it up in May. I'll double check with him. So we'll look for that. Indeed, I'll let you guys know. You're also doing a Bugs Bunny talk, right? Yeah. Well, glad you mentioned that. <laughs> I'm giving a talk on April 1st, no kidding, on Bugs Bunny. And I looked particularly in the last week or two for any evidence I could find and I could not of anything racist, but I don't quite know how to proceed against a charge. And I think it was the article you sent me, Joe, of the man who has done a lot of work on, on Dr. Seuss, who said in effect, even if you don't recognize the racism here, quote, it's hidden. Yes. And once I hit something like that, there's no argument. Um, things are hidden, things are 
unconscious. There's no way of, of countering that. That's like a QAnon thing, isn't it? Yes, indeed. <laughs> That's pretty terrifying. Uh, right. Um, so, but I think the unusual aspect to the Dr. Seuss cancel culture, and I'm deliberately and nastily using that, that uh, term, I think the unusual feature is that it ostensibly affects children. And we have at least the illusion that we can have a discussion, an argument, um, showing evidence, changing minds, and as Annette said, maybe even changing policy about publication. But it's very difficult to do this with children and to anticipate what they can understand and absorb. But the first thing I surely would hope, both for children and adults, is that we stop abusing ISM, IST words, not just for race, but for everything. I mean, look in the news and your enemy is immediately a communist, a socialist. Uh, <laughs> right, whatever it is, and the name calling is just a conversation stopper. Well, good. Well, this is a very interesting conversation, don't you think? Yes. Absolutely. I, I knew it would be. And you know what I'm going to do as soon as we're done here? I'm going to go up and scour through my daughter's shelves to see how many $500 <laughs> copies of Dr. Seuss. Oh, the racists will show. The places will go. <laughs> I can't wait for the Bugs Bunny talk. I want to be there. Cause... Yes. As, as Daffy would say, yes, indeed. <laughs> You can definitely find some Bugs Bunny images that are a little racist, though, John. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.